So last week we talked about the revelation that first came down to Muhammad About three years prior to Muhammad becoming Prophet, he was bombarded with dreams by the angel Israel. And the way he described it, he said the dreams that he used to get would be of words. And it will be thrown at him in his dream at very, very fast speed. So it's almost like brain training. You know, when you look at words and pictures, and it, your conscious mind won't acknowledge it, but your subconscious mind can pick up all of this information. So it's almost like warming him up, ready for these revelations. And then when the revelation did happen, we talked about that Muhammad started to receive about six months prior to him receiving the actual revelation. Six months prior to that, he would start receiving dreams which were called the, 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 the dreams of reality, which means that every time you would have a dream at night, the same actual event would happen in the day. So the first revelation, as you all know it, Muhammad was in the cave in Manhira, and Angel Jibril came to him and he received Surah Al-Alaq, the first revelation. Did you know that he actually had that first revelation in a dream on the same day? So he had that dream prior of this event happening and he went to Khadija and told her about this and then when he went to the cave then the actual event happened so the scholars tried to work out the sequence of certain ayahs that were revealed and the order that they were revealed so there is a little bit of dispute how it was done but we know for example that when Muhammad went to Mount Hira and he was approached by Angel Jibreel, the first ayah that was revealed to him was Surah Al-Alaq, which said, recite in the name of your Lord. And this was a very profound ayah because of the fact that he was ummi, he was unlettered, he could not read, he could not write. So he was saying to him, what do you want me to read? I'm unable to read and you're not showing me anything. But this was just Angel Jibreel telling him, recite in the name of your Lord, meaning get ready because a whole series of these are going to come down over a 22 year period. So... He had this dream and then he left and as he was leaving Manhira and he was walking down the valley to go back home, he could hear these voices giving him salam. And the way they gave him salam, they didn't say salam alaikum Muhammad, they said salam O messenger of Allah. And he's thinking, why are they calling me messenger? And he's turning around looking to see who was talking to me. And only later on it was revealed to him by Jibril that it was the rocks and the trees that were giving you salam as you were walking. So he was obviously shocked and then he went home and he asked his wife to cloak him so that obviously when you've been in a shock, no matter what the weather is, your body temperature drops. He was shaking, he asked his wife to cloak him and he explained to her and he thought he had seen a demon or devil or something and she consoled him and said, you are of such a character that there's no way that a shayateen would come to see you because you bind relationships with family, you feed the poor, you know, you are known to be trustworthy in your community. And something very interesting happened. There was a narration in a hadith that was referred to by one of the scholars who said that even though Khadija was convinced that Muhammad had been approached by Injibril because that was also confirmed by her uncle, there was a time they were in the house and, and uh, Khadija radiallahu said to Muhammad when when he, your companion comes, meaning Jibreel, will you let me know, right? And I just, I want to test to see if he really is what we think he is. 
So she would sit very close to him. And then she said, is he here? And Mahmoud said, yes, Jibreel is here. And then she would say to Mahmoud come closer to me. You know, like they're being quite affectionate. And then she would say, is he still there? And Mahmoud would say, he's still standing there. Then he would say, come sit on my lap. And then he would say, is he still standing there? And Mahmoud said, yeah, he's still standing there. Then she got quite affectionate with him. And then she said, is he still there? And he said, no, he's left out of shame. And then she said that there's no way this could be a devil because devils would stay. But because this is an act of goodness and khair, this must be the angel. So there were different indications here. So when Muhammad came back to the house and he was cloaked, then Angel Jibril came to him again and Surat Al-Mundathir was revealed to him. And that ayah of the Quran talked about, O oh, you who was wrapped up, arise and give warning and glorify your Lord and purify your garments and reject idolatry. So here, the first one, Angel Jibreel is telling Muhammad recite. He doesn't know what to recite, but he's getting him ready. You're going to recite. Don't worry, there's stuff going to come down. So the verse revealed. Second one was, get up. Now's the time to be a man and get ready for your training because you're going to be going out there into the big wide world and you're going to stop this idolatry. You're going to stop the kufr that around you. You're going to stand up for this. So again, it came to him. And then after a few days, there was a hadith that talked about how Muhammad wouldn't get out of bed for a couple of days. And a woman walked past and said, what's happened? Has your companion, meaning has your angel left you on your own? And the eye of the Quran was then revealed to him by the morning hours and by the night when it darkens, your Lord has not forsaken you, nor is he displeased. Because here, Muhammad was thinking, what is this? I'm not getting the revelation because there was gaps. So what was happening? Muhammad was, was receiving short spurts of revelation and then gaps in between. So he was very happy knowing that this is Angel Jibreel because Warqab bin Nafel had confirmed that this is the angel. So when he got that confirmation, then Muhammad wanted more of this because what he believed all his life, the idolaters, the way the Quraysh behaved, everything he disliked and the love he had for Ismail and Ibrahim is now being backed up by these revelations. So when it wasn't coming to him that often, it depressed him. And in, 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 in Bukhari itself describes that he would sometimes go to the mountain and he would try to jump off it. And then Angel Jibreel will show himself and say, no, you are the true messenger. And this would happen several times. The mental training and these gaps that occurred when Muhammad was getting prepared and he increased his desire to have more revelation, then the revelation started coming down in more completeness. So... Eventually, when this conversation that occurred with Warqa bin Nafel and Muhammad Sallam, Warqa bin Nafel, when he described about the angel Jibreel, he said something quite interesting. So in this conversation, he said, this is the archangel Gabriel that came to Moses. And now that has come to you. And it's funny that he didn't say Isa bin Maryam. And the reason why the scholars say that, because they say that Islam, the Quran and the Sharia, is actually a continuation of Musa Islam's commandments and not Isa bin Maryam's. So if you look at the eyes of the Qur'an, for example, it will mention in the eye of the Qur'an, and so that I may make permissible to you of that what was forbidden to you previously, meaning in the religion of Musa Islam. So there were certain things, for the people of Musa Islam, certain things were allowed, certain things were forbidden, and when the verse of the Qur'an came down, they overrid those rules. So this is why it was important for uh, Muhammad to try and understand this. And so... 
Warqa bin Nafail, he said to Muhammad that now that I know that you are the Prophet, if I was young and if I live long enough, I will stand next to you. I don't care who's going to come for you. And when they come to exile you and throw you out, I'll be standing here. And obviously that was a shock for Muhammad because he didn't think that they were going to kick him out or they're going to throw him out. He thought he was loved in his community. He was part of a very prestigious and noble family. And to think that they were going to do this made him realize that this is a very, very serious situation that we're getting into. Interestingly enough, Waraka bin Nafel, in the intermissions of the very first few uh, revelations, Waraka bin Nafel died. So the question was asked later on by some of the Sahabi, and Muhammad received a revelation and he said, in regards to Waraka bin Nafel, I saw him and I saw on him white clothing, which I observed in the heart of paradise. And he was wearing a silk robe. So that indication of his revelation proved that Waraka bin Nafel became Muslim, accepted Muhammad and was going to enter paradise. There was another character by the name of Zayd bin Amr bin Nafel, who was a friend of his. And if you remember last, last week, I talked about how, how Waraka bin Nafel became uh, a Christian before they were pagans. And the signs of Muhammad that was coming the idols, they fell apart, and then there was some talking coming from the idols, saying that seek the truth and so forth, and they realized their idol worshipping was ridiculous. The idols talking to us and telling us to find the truth. And so they all went their different ways to follow uh, a religion, and they all actually basically embraced Islam. So they asked about Zayb bin Amr bin Nafel, who's very famously known amongst the Quraysh, and Muhammad said that on the day of judgment, this man Zayb bin Amr bin Nafel will be raised up like as if he was one whole nation. So what that indicates is, if one whole nation did good, you get the reward of the whole nation. That's the sacrifice that he had made and the commitment that he had made. Then they asked him about his uncle Abu Talib. So his uncle Abu Talib is the one, and we'll talk about him as we go along. This is after Abu Talib passed away. Abu Talib was his uncle. He loved Muhammad Sallam very close to him, supported him and everything, protected his nephew from the attacks of the Quraysh, physical, verbal, anything you can imagine that they wanted to do to him, Abu Talib protected him. And Abu Talib was the father of Hazrat Ali as well. They asked about Abu Talib, what will happen to him? And he said to them, I drew him out from the depths of hell and brought him to the shallow part of hell. That's the best I could do for him because he never embraced Islam. And there's a hadith that goes on to say, how severe is that punishment? He said the punishment is so severe, he's in the least part of hell that is giving you punishment. He says when he puts his foot down on that place, his head explodes immediately. And then Allah will recreate his head within a second, and he will keep repeating that same thing again and again, and the punishment will keep increasing, and the pain will keep increasing. So this was a man this is a man that protected Muhammad Sallam. A man that protected Muhammad Sallam and was very close to that truth. And then they asked about Hazrat Khadija, what will happen to her? Because remember, many of these people, they died at a very early stage. And Muhammad Sallam, whenever mention of Hazrat Khadija, he melts because that's the love of his life. And he said, I saw her beside a river in paradise and a house was specially made for her where it was made from the reels of pearls. So there was reels of pearls that made up her house. And there where she sat, there was no noise, no hardship, complete serenity and peace for her. So 
he did receive a lot of revelation about what happened to them in the hereafter. So Hazrat Khadija, when she obviously heard about Muhammad Sallam's experience, she did immediately run off to see there was a there was a black slave by the name of Adas, and I think he was from Abyssinia, and he was a slave of uh, Rabia bin Mughera. And he went to see him and he said, tell me what you know about Gabriel. And he was shocked. He's a young kid. He looked at her and he said, Gabriel, is, are you having a lot? In this town, nobody even knows who Gabriel is. You're all idol worshippers. She said, look, just shut up and tell me, what do you know? And then he explained that this is the angel that came down to all the prophets. That's when she went off to Warqab bin Nafal and said, you need to talk to my nephew. What do you know about angel Jibreel? And this description that he's done. And one interesting thing he said to Muhammad Sallam was, tell me something. Did this thing that come to you, did it come from the darkness or did it come from the light? Because Muhammad Sallam was sure that it may have been a demon that came to see him. And he said it came from the light. He goes, there's no chance that a demon never comes from the light. It's, it's going to be Angel Jibreel. And that's when he said that I will support you. On that very same day, that very same day when the revelation was revealed to Muhammad Sallam, in the city of Makkah and in every part of Arabia where there was idols. So many of these tribes had Ubal, they had Lut, Uzza, or they had all these different idols. Every single idol and all the smaller idols, and the moment he received revelation, they got thrown over. They got turned over. So people realized there was something that wasn't right here. There's an interesting hadith that talks about on that day, the Shayateen were with Iblis and they were travelling out because that's what the Shayateen do they'll go to Iblis and they'll go back out and they'll see who they can dissuade away from the true path and how they can make people even do more sin and so forth and they came back to Iblis and they said tonight we have seen all of the idols being thrown upside down or turned on their heads and obviously Iblis was the one that introduced the idols why has that happened? so Iblis said to them Go back out to all the villages. This is a sign something has happened and Allah has made something happen. Go find out what it is. So they went out and they tried to look and they couldn't find anything. They came, but we can't find anything. So Iblis said, I will go out. So Iblis was told, he had a premonition that he should go to this area called Makkah. And when he went there, he found Muhammad Sallam. He had an intention to harm Muhammad Sallam. When he saw Muhammad Sallam, he saw Jibreel with him. And when Jibreel turned around and saw Shaitan there, Jibreel went to go and attack. And Iblis was all in his gear and he ran back. When he went back to the Shayateen and he gathered them up, he said, today and tonight I have seen what I didn't expect to see. And that is that Allah has sent down another prophet. What do you think we should do? And the Shayateen's response was, we will make earthly pleasures delightful in the eyes of the people that try to follow him. And so we will make them leave him. And Iblis said, that's a good idea. That's exactly what we'll do. They didn't want anyone to follow Muhammad Sallam and that was their objective. When Muhammad Sallam started receiving this desire to receive more revelation, he would be so eager to try to memorize it that when Jibreel would say it, he would try to read with him. So you know like if you have a kid and a child and you're trying to make him read something and he just tries to sort of move much faster. So Allah taught Muhammad he said to Jibreel, tell this man Muhammad, do not move your tongue with it or try to speak in haste. Calm yourself down. 
because you are going to receive this. It is up to us, meaning for Allah and Jibreel, to put it together and to recite it. So when we do recite it, follow its recitation, and then it's up to us to explain it. And this is in Surah Al-Qiyamah. So here Allah is saying to Muhammad don't rush. You're not going to remember, we're going to put it in your heart. Just follow it. We'll roll it off your tongue. We'll then explain it to you. And when we explain it to you, it will be in your heart. So there's one thing when somebody teaches you or you learn about Islam and it just doesn't, it doesn't resonate with you and you don't feel motivated to do something. Here, Allah Ta'ala is saying to Muhammad that whatever you, we teach you, don't worry. It will be in your heart to such a strength that you'll be able to fulfill it, even if it's the hardest of tasks. And then Allah went on to say, And do not make haste with the recitation before its revelation to you has been completed. And say, O oh Allah, increase me in knowledge. Meaning, let the revelation get completed. Then you'll memorize it and then you'll learn it. So these are very early verses of the Quran that we have revealed to Muhammad on those particular situations. And then he went on to say that due to his eagerness to receive from the angel what Allah and the glorious has revealed to him, he used to join him through recitation. So Angel B will be reciting and Muhammad will be reciting with him. Parallel. Allah then ordered him, no, stop, listen, and then we will teach it to you. So here you can see that Muhammad was in this eagerness to learn as much as possible. And when the recitation was coming, you've got to remember one thing. There's a power to the recitation. There's a power to reading Quran. And I actually read something today where it was quite beautiful. Uh, Sheikh was saying that, and I have mentioned this before as well, but it, it's always different when you hear it from somebody else. So there is something, there is power in the Quran, right? When you recite Quran, there is something in that. So we say the classic view is when you read Quran, for every word, yeah, you get 10 hasanas and your reward just increases. But reciting Quran has another magical purpose which is unseen to us. So this scholar was saying that when you recite Quran, it could be that inside of your body, you could be developing cancer. And the recitation of the Quran that you've done has reversed that cancer, but you're oblivious to what's happened to your body. I'm talking about the physical, not the raw side. All will be revealed to you on the day of judgment when Allah will say, come here, let me show you what happened. You at the age of 24 were going to develop a tumour. But your recitation prevented that tumour from growing and killed it. And you did not even know about it. So there is something that's quite powerful in the recitation that when Muhammad used to recite, it used to give him a superb inner strength. We know, look, we know that Muhammad used to say if you were ill, you read certain verses of the Quran and you do dumb of yourself or you blow of yourself. But there is something about building up strength and iman. When you find yourself in a situation that you can't put yourself through challenges, where you can't go beyond certain points, where you're not getting something, go back to the Quran. If Allah could list down, if, if you wanted a list of all the benefits, we wouldn't be able to do it. So Allah says, just put your trust in me, read the Quran. If you feel down, if difficulties, read the Quran. So this is one of the things that came to Muhammad And by accepting the revelation, Muhammad now began to understand that 
He needed that revelation to make him strong because he knew hardship would occur. Remember that prophethood brings burdens and troubles that only a messenger can handle. Who are strong, they're determined, right, to face any challenge as long as they have the support of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Their burdens arise not from issues that come from themselves, but from the reactions of other men. Where the other men or people will reject your belief. You as a Muslim, if you live in this world and you have no burden, that's because in most cases you're not carrying Islam. And not do you not carry Islam, you don't practice Islam, and if you don't carry it to teach others, what burden will you have? Because you're just, you're completely integrated within society. Now if you start practicing, now if you today, you said, right, I'm going to pray five times a day. I'm not going to miss my Jummah. Something that you've never done at work before. Now all of a sudden you have to start praying five times a day at work. And your boss looks at you, your colleagues look at you, they make fun of you, they talk a little bit, have a little giggle about you, makes you feel uncomfortable. Then situations like Jummah, when they, you know, sometimes people put meetings there or there's a team lunch and you have to go for Jummah, you have to say, I'm not going to go. The fact that you follow the revelation, not receiving, Mansur was receiving and the burdens was on him. The fact that you follow the revelation, what is the thing that stresses you the most now? It's the burden of the reaction of other people in society. When you have children and you try to guide them towards the deen, they're not praying, they're not fasting, they're not doing the right things. And you try to teach them and they're not doing it. Is that not a burden on you? Isn't that the burden of the people who are not following or accepting the revelation? That's the burden that comes on you. So Muhammad when he was receiving this revelation over a period of 23 years, that's all you'll hear. That he's trying to save his ummah, guide them to the truth. But forget about, there's one thing when you say, look, I don't want to follow it, I'll come back tomorrow. But there's another when someone's trying to kill you over it because they don't want to hear what you have to say. So Muhammad was continuously going through this stress and challenges. So we now we're going to the section about those who accepted Islam. So this is important. Who are the people that originally accepted Islam? And inshallah next week I'll bring the PowerPoint slides so we can understand the connections between the people, Sahabi and, and those who, who embraced Islam. So obviously you know when Muhammad received the revelation, who was the first person he approached? His wife, Hazrat Khadija. And Hazrat Khadija unconditionally accepted Islam. And she had no idea about this religion, nothing. She had no understanding. She just knew, she trusted her husband, she loved her husband. Now that Waraka bin Nafail has confirmed that that was Archangel Gabriel, okay, I'm going to accept whatever you accept. Now, why, why would a wife do that? Well, she's been with this man and in marriage for about 20 years. She knows his character. Right? She knows what he's like. She knows how he deals with people. She knows how people respond to him. She knows how he treats her. It was easy for her to accept whatever he accepted. And that's what makes Khadija anha, special to the point that when she became Muslim, Angel Jibreel said to Muhammad Allah commands you to give salam to her. And Allah commands you to tell her about the glad tidings that she will receive. So she was already blessed by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And in the early stages, this is something interesting. Angel Jibreel came at the early stage to show Muhammad how to pray. So he met Muhammad in the valley. And Angel Jibreel kicked the side of the mountain with his heel and Zamzam came out. He showed Muhammad how to perform the wudu, the ablution. 
and then he taught him how to pray by doing, and the hadith says, the two bowings and the four prostrations, which means that's two nafal, two bowings and four prostrations. So Muhammad went back and took Hadija, taught her what he was taught by Jibreel, and in the salah. This salah is not the salah you're praying. The salah that you pray was revealed to Muhammad 13 years later, or 10 to 13 years later. This salah is the one that was fard upon Muhammad and it was only ever two rakat. It was always two. This is what they used to pray, and they used to pray in secret. And the reason why I say that is because later on, when they came back from the Isra al Miraj, that's when the the five times they was established. It wasn't five times here. This is just for them to pray the two rakat. Something for Muhammad to continue. And it was the the way that Hazrat Ibrahim Islam and Musa Islam all they used to pray. And we know now from evidences from their own scriptures that they used to prostrate as well. So this is an interesting point to remember. The salah is not the salah that you pray now. It is a different salah that was incumbent upon them. So she was always with Muhammad and supported him continuously. But unfortunately, Allah SWT willed that she wasn't going to live for a very long time. Now, the second person that then embraced Islam was Hazrat Ali. Okay, and if you don't know who Hazrat Ali is, Hazrat Ali is Muhammad's first cousin. So Muhammad's father, Abdullah, who passed away when Muhammad wasn't even born, his father had an older brother, blood brother, called Abu Talib. It was, it was his older brother. So Abu Talib is his daya, or is his first uncle. So Ali is the son of Abu Talib, the one we mentioned, Muhammad pulled out of the depths of hell. Now Ali was roughly about the age of eight years old, so he wasn't mature at the time. And the story was that Abu Talib, at the time when things were very difficult, they used to, the, the, the Meccans and the Arabs used to suffer from famine quite often. And if things got very difficult, if you have a big family, it's very hard to meet the needs of that family. So Abbas, who's the other brother of uh, Abu Talib, Muhammad approached his other uncle Abbas and said, let's go to Abu Talib. He's got a very big family. Let's take some of the burden off him. So the approach was that Muhammad said to Abu Talib, why don't I take Ali with me? So some of the kids got split up so that Abu Talib, it wasn't a burden on him to provide food and clothing shelter for them continuously. So that's how Hazrat Ali became the household of Muhammad So Muhammad almost kind of like adopted him. So he lived in the house of Muhammad That makes sense. So Muhammad is now 42. And Hazrat Ali is nine, so you can look at the age gap. So Ali used to live with them. One day Hazrat Ali comes in and he sees Hazrat Khadija and Muhammad's son praying. And as a young kid, he's shocked. He goes, what is this? What are you doing? And Muhammad's son responds to him and says, this is our way of praying to Allah, the one God. He said, what is this one God? What is this new religion that you have? And then he explained to him about that Allah has revealed to him the revelation, the Qur'an, and that he is the prophet, the messenger, and we believe in one God, and that you should leave the idol worshipping. Now, Hazrat Ali, because he was not mature, there's no accountability for him. But obviously, growing up in a family where they were all idol worshippers, that's all he knew. So when he said to Hazrat Ali, when he said to Hazrat Ali, become Muslim, he said, I need to think about it, I need to talk to my dad about this. And Muhammad immediately said, look, 
I don't want this to be open. So don't say anything to your father. Just leave it and think about it. So Ali went away and then overnight Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala opened his heart and then he was more attracted to Islam and then the next day he embraced it. So what's interesting about Hazrat Ali is he was the first Muslim or the first person who did not convert into Islam because he was underage. So when he accepted Islam, that was his first religion. The third person that now embraced is Zayd bin Haritha. So we talk about Hazrat Khadija, the wife. Now we talk about Hazrat Ali, his cousin, who lived with him. Zayd bin Haritha. Who was Zayd bin Haritha? Zayd bin Haritha was also in the household of Prophet Muhammad His full name was Zayd bin Haritha bin Qalbi because he's from a tribe called Qalbi or a sub-tribe from the Banu Qalbi. Zayd bin Haritha, when he was very young, they used to live in an area of Najat. So if you look at Saudi Arabia and divide it in the middle from north to south, Everything on the west side is Makkah, Medina, near the coast. That was considered at the south of UK, London, the Royal Posha area, etc. And Najd was considered to be, because it's in the middle of the desert, people are more tribal. They were used to be, uh, these guys used to be involved in a lot more looting and tribal warfare and so forth, right? Not a lot of trade happened with these people. So he's from a tribe near Najd. Now, his father was named Harith, and his father had some internal issues with some sub-tribes of the Qalbi. One day, his mother, uh, Zayb bin Haritha's mother, he didn't know Muhammad at this time, his mother takes her son Zayb bin Haritha to the Banu Ma'an, that's her family, and they went there to visit their family. After a few days, a bunch of horsemen came from the Banu Qain tribe, and they picked him up and kidnapped him. Now, story goes on to say that this was in revenge to the, his father. There was issues going on. So they took him and they took him to, to the market of Uqaz, which is near Busra. This is a marketplace that you come, you sell your goods and you buy and, and, and trade slaves. So he was taken here and a man by the name of Hizam bin Hakim came and bought him. Hizam bin Hakim was the nephew of Khazar Khadija. And it's amazing how Allah SWT sets everything up. He gets bought by Hizam. Hizam gives Zayd bin Haritha as a gift to Hazrat Khadija before she is married to Muhammad Sallam. So this is before the marriage. So now Zayd is a slave of Hazrat Khadija. When Hazrat Khadija now, many years later, gets married to Muhammad Sallam, she gives Zayd bin Haritha as a gift to Muhammad Sallam, as part of a wedding gift. So Zayb bin Haritha was now given to Muhammad Sallam. Muhammad Sallam loved this young lad, took care of him and almost treated him like his own son. Now, obviously, Zayb bin Haritha's father, many years have gone past. As like any father, if your son or your daughter goes missing, there is nothing more painful, nothing more painful. If you have elders, mothers and fathers, if they suffer from dementia and they disappear, it's very, very painful. So his father suffered greatly. And he got the message out to try and find. Now, how are you going to find a young boy that's now gone from one city to another? Imagine you're, you know, not the billah, you know, Allah forbid anything to happen. But just imagine if someone's child gets kidnapped, right, from London you know, or from Slough. It only takes five, ten minutes and they're gone on the motorway. From the motorway, they've gone down to the port. From the port, they're now shipped over. How are you, where are you going to start from to find your child? It's difficult. 
It's very, very challenging. So, so for his father, hard. It was painful. Many years later, there was a pilgrim season in Makkah. And one of the tribes from Zayb bin Haritha's tribe, they came, from the Qalbi tribe, they came to perform their Hajj. When they came, they saw this boy and they recognized his features. And then they realized this boy looks like Harith's son. So they went back and they told Harith, we think we've seen your son and he's in Mecca. So Harith came with his brother. They rode all the way down to Mecca. They walked around to find out, is there a boy by the name of Zayd bin Haritha, etc. And they said, yes, he's, he's a slave of uh, Muhammad. You need to go to such and such place. So Harith goes to see Muhammad He's overwhelmed seeing his son. And he says to Muhammad look, I'll pay you whatever you want, but I want you to give me my son back. He got taken away from me and I want him back. So Muhammad was such a character. He said, I don't want any money. Zaid, come here. And Zaid recognized his father immediately and his uncle. And he said to Zaid, look, you've been with me for a while. I don't want to force you. Your father is here. It's up to you. If you want to go home with them, you're more than welcome. And Zaid bin Haritha looked at Muhammad and then looked at his father. And he said, this man, the love and the affection that he gave me and has given me, is more than a combination of my mother and my father. And my heart wants me to stay with him. I don't want to leave Muhammad. So Muhammad was overwhelmed by the fact that Zayb bin Haritha wanted to stay with him. And his father, Hadith, was devastated. He's like, what are you talking about? I'm your father. But he realized that a bond was built over the years that this man looked after him in such a way that Muhammad immediately was so overwhelmed and happy that he went to the Kaaba. And here's where you make your announcements about anything, right? So if you've got problem, you've got issue with someone, you make an agreement. Normally you go out to the Kaaba to let people know, I give protection to this guy, so no one's allowed to touch him. And everyone has to honor that. So Muhammad came out with Zayb bin Haritha. He said, today I free this boy. He's no longer a slave. And from this day on, I adopt him as my son. And he will be known as Zayd bin Muhammad. And he will have the rights to my inheritance. Now this is before all the rules and the hukum of inheritance came down. Because all of this got changed later on. So then everyone knew him as Zayd bin Muhammad. So this is the story of Zayd bin Haritha, that he was with Muhammad and lived in the house. And obviously when Islam came to the house, then he had uh, adopted it. So Zayd bin Haritha, just as an individual, you'll know that he was very, very close to Muhammad And one of the most famous stories about Zayd bin Haritha is when, and we will talk about this, uh, inshallah, you know, in, in months to come. But generally, Zayd bin Haritha was sent by Muhammad to the northern part of Arabia to tackle a tribe, a Christian tribe, who were causing a lot of problems for the Muslims when the caravans were going. So this is much later when Islam is established in Medina. The Muslims have some you know, power and they're, and they're establishing Islam everywhere. But they've got caravans going up. So these caravans were being raided by these Christian tribes. And the Christian tribes had a lot of backing for the, with the Roman Empire. So Muhammad sent 3,000 men with the head of Zayb bin Haritha. He was in charge. And a few of the Sahabi went. And this is the first battle that Khalid bin Walid um, also attended. So when they went there, they were expected to be 
their objective was to scare this small tribe from Ghassan, to scare them so they will back off. What they didn't realize is that the Ghassan tribe got the news out to Caesar and Caesar dispatched a quarter of a million men. So they turned up and on the open land, there was a quarter of a million of these soldiers and they didn't know what to do. That's when they were thinking, do we turn back and so forth. But Zabin Haritha led this army and they fought. And that was when Zabin Haritha died as a martyr. Then it was uh, Jafar bin Abu Talib, Mansur's cousin, Hazrat Ali's brother. He died as a martyr there. Abdul bin Ruaha, which we'll mention him in a minute, he died there. And that's when they had no choice. They didn't know who to put in charge. And that's when they picked Khalid bin Walid. And that's when Khalid bin Walid took his first step on the stage to become a commander of the Muslim army. And that's where he got his name, Saifullah, the sword of Allah. And 3,000, with that 3,000 men, he basically beat the Roman uh, uh, soldiers. Didn't fight them, killed them. He did it very strategically, but inshallah we'll cover that story. But Zaybin Haritha is also famously mentioned one, because of his story as a, as a, as a slave and then given to Mansur Salam, the Battle of Mu'tah, but the most famous one is he's the only Sahabi, the only Sahabi that is mentioned by name in the Quran. Not even Abu Bakr is mentioned by name. He's referred to, yeah, they refer to, they infer to, but Hazrat Zayd bin Haritha is mentioned by name. In a verse of Quran, so you can check. <laughs> I know some of you are thinking, no, no, they're not mentioned. They're not mentioned at all. They're inferred to, right? So event happened, and they're talking about Abu Bakr Siddiq, but his name is not mentioned. So that honor Allah has honored him that when we recite Quran, we'll recite his name until the day of judgment. The next stage was Abu Bakr Siddiq. Okay, now Abu Bakr Siddiq. If you don't know him, Abu Bakr Siddiq was from the uh, tribe of Taim. And the, the Banu Taim is a sub-tribe of the Quraysh. Very powerful tribe. Very honorable tribe. And Abu Bakr had a very prestigious name and reputation. Number one, he was a master at genealogy. So he knew he could look at you and know exactly what family you came from. Yeah, who your ancestors were. Number two, phenomenal businessman. Very honest, excellent tradesperson. And people all like to do business with him. So he was very well known for that. Number three, he was great as a person to get involved in disputes and issues. He was called for that. So a lot of people looked up to him in terms of resolving their issues, disputes or trade agreements if they went sour. So one day Abu Bakr Sadiq was sitting with the Banu Taim and they were talking and they said, this man Muhammad, he's come out and he's talking about some new religion now. Now this is unusual because the Quraysh take pride in their religion. They take pride in their in their gods and their idols. And for Muslim to come out to start challenging us, this is a big issue. So Abu Bakr Siddiq listened to the conversation and knowing obviously uh, Muhammad being his best friend, went rushed off to go and see him. He came to Muhammad Salam and he says, Muhammad, what is this I'm hearing? That you're attacking the Quraysh. You're attacking their intellect. You're attacking their idols. You're attacking their ancestors. You're attacking their fathers. Is this right? And then he said to Abu Bakr Siddiq, he said, Ya Abu Bakr, Allah has reached out to me via Angel Jibreel. There is only one God but Allah and I have been assigned as the messenger of God. And Allah rejects all these idols. 
And we need to turn against these, accept me as a prophet and reject this idol, reject this pagan views that people hold. So Abu Bakr Sadiq is looking at Muhammad and he knows of his character and there was not one single hesitation in him and he said, I accept. So what's interesting about Abu Bakr Sadiq over the other Sahabi was there was much later on in a hadith, one day Abu Bakr Sadiq and Umar Ghattab were having a very severe argument, quite a fierce argument, nearly came to blows and there were other people around. Muhammad came in on the argument and he said to Umar ibn Khattab, he says, will you leave my friend alone? Leave this companion of mine alone. He said, do you all remember when I became a prophet, every one of you accused me of being a liar. Every one of you accused me of being something other than the prophet. You rejected me. But this man unconditionally accepted everything that I had to say and supported me with his money, with his blood, with his wealth, with everything. So the status of Abu Bakr Siddiq was huge, massive. And Abu Bakr Siddiq was about a decade older than Muhammad Sallam. So th there was that age difference, but they were very close. And the next story kind of really explains how Abu Bakr Siddiq sacrificed himself for the cause of Islam. Now, before I go on to that, Muhammad Sallam only could manage, and this is important to remember, this is a prophet, this is a man that has been given revelation, the strength and the power of revelation, and has the full backing of Allah. He himself could only reach Islam out to a few people. It was Abu Bakr Siddiq that through him that the next wave of converts came. Who were those converts? So people like Hazrat Uthman bin Affan. Muhammad didn't convert him. Abu Bakr Siddiq invited him to Islam. And Hazrat Uthman bin Affan later on became the son-in-law of Muhammad and he became the third Khalif. Okay? Talha bin Ubaidullah, another famous Sahabi. Okay, and we're just going to cover his story. So Talha bin Ubaidullah, how did he know about Muhammad He went to the north to Busra. We talk about Busra all the time. It's going further north, not into the land of Syria, but it's the land where they, they trade and it's almost like a service stop. When he arrives there, because he's on a journey now for months, so he hasn't been in Makkah for a while. He arrives there, a monk comes out. He sees all the people arrive in the caravan. He says, which one of you are from the land of Makkah. And then Talha turns and goes, I am. He goes, come here, son. I'm going to talk to you. He goes, tell me something. Has a man come out yet that has been inspired by Angel Gabriel who declares that he is a prophet and will eventually leave that land of Mecca to go to the land of palm trees, meaning Medina? He says, no, what are you talking about? He says, well, the time is now. So when Talha went back, when he got to Makkah, people were talking about Muhammad Sallam. So he was shocked. How did this man know about him coming out? So then he went to see Abu Bakr Siddiq and Abu Bakr Siddiq said, yes, it is true. The next one is Al-Zubair bin Awam, very famous Sahabi. Saad bin Abu Waqas. You know this because every time you uh, open your fast on Islam channel, it will say uh, Saad bin Abu Waqas narrated hadith and it will talk about the hadith of the <laughs> opening the fast, right? So again, one of the famous Sahabi. Um, and then after them, so they came and they gave the allegiance to Muhammad Sallam, followed Islam. 
and then the next wave after them that was again inspired by Abu Bakr Siddiq, including people like Uthman bin Mazan, people like Abu Ubaidah, Abdul Rahman bin Auf, the one who was killed uh, and martyred in the uh, the Battle of Mu'ta, which was mentioned, and uh, Abu Salama, Muhammad Salam's first cousin, he invited him as well, and obviously Al Arkam, who is Al Arkam is the is the person where they all hid and they used to teach from his house all of Islam. So you begin to see. Now the final story here talks about how Abu Bakr Siddiq commitment to Muhammad Sallam in terms of sacrificing everything for this religion. When they had these waves, right? So there was about 37 of them now converted. 37 people now converted. And Abu Bakr Siddiq said to Muhammad Sallam, why do we have to do this in hiding? Why don't we just go openly and proclaim Islam to everyone? He said, there's only 37 of us. But Abu Bakr Siddiq said, no, we should just go and do it. So Muhammad Sallam said, okay, fine. So the group went in, a group of them, maybe 20 of them, went to the, into the masjid. They have a masjid. The masjid isn't a masjid. The way you think of it is where they do their meetings and their gatherings, the, the, the tribal leaders. So they walk in and then those Muslims dispersed into their sub-tribes. If you walk into a masjid, they'd be like, the Banu Qalib will be there, the Banu Taim uh, will be there, the Quraysh will be here, etc. So you just kind of sit with your group. Then Imam Sallam came and he sat in the corner. Abu Bakr Siddiq stood up, went to the front, and then pronounced Islam to everyone. Declared Muhammad Sallam to be the Prophet of Allah, the Messenger of Allah, and that he is a true messenger, and there is only one God but Allah, and the idols and the pagans are nothing but fraud and fake. Immediately, this made them angry, and they started to beat Abu Bakr Siddiq. Everyone joined in. Utbad Rabia had a leather slipper sandal and he beat Abu Bakr's face so badly, cut him, lacerations in his face, beat him, stamped on his head, stamped on his ribs. They all started kicking him, beating him. They wanted to kill him. That's when Abu, sorry, the Banu Taim, his tribe came in. They stopped them, pulled him away, got very angry and took Abu Bakr Siddiq away. And they said, if anything happens to him, we're going to come back and we're going to kill you. So you can just imagine, it was just chaos, it was just riot. Everyone was running around beating each other and then everyone just scarpered. Abu Bakr Siddiq got taken home, went to the care of his mother and he was unconscious for a long time. So the Bandu day, the men were sitting with him and they're like, what are, you, what are you doing this for? And he said, where is Muhammad? Where is, and he didn't say Muhammad, he said, where is the messenger of God? Now they don't like this term, right? Messenger of what is this? Because that statement is a rejection of their worshipping of, of idols. Where is the messenger of God? Because you accept it, you accept everything else. Where is the messenger of God? They got angry. They got up and they said to his mother, just make sure you keep feeding him and give him water. We're out of here. And they went. So he said to his mother, where is the messenger of God? She goes, I don't know who you're talking about. I don't know who you're referring to. So Abu Bakr Sadiq said to his mother, I want you to call Umm Jamil. Umm Jamil is the sister of Umar bin al-Khattab. So she embraced Islam, but Umm Hazrat Umar hasn't yet. Where is Umm Jamil? Bring her. So his mother went out, found Umm Jamil. Now, they kept it all quiet. No one knew they were Muslims. So she said, okay. She went to Abu Bakr Siddiq's house, and when she saw the state of him, she became so angry with the way they treated him, the way they beat him. And Abu Bakr Siddiq said to Umm Jamil, 
how is the messenger of Allah? She looked around thinking, oh, oh you're going to blow my cover. You do realize your mother's standing here. He goes, it doesn't matter. I just want to know, take me to him. So they picked him up and they took him to the house of Arakam. And Muhammad received him. Muhammad hugged him, kissed him. Because he was like, this man, the best friend of mine, look what he went through for me. And then Abu Bakr Siddiq, at that point, he said to Muhammad this is my mother. Oh, Messenger of Allah. He won't even call him Muhammad anymore. Because he has so much respect. Imagine, like, you know, you, you've now elevated your friend to a different position. He said, Oh, Messenger of Allah, this is my mother. She is the most dearest thing to me. Please teach her about Islam and recite the Quran to her. And it was the recitation of the Quran that was the thing that convinced people. It was the deal breaker. Because we don't understand the Quran and the miracle is in the language. So when they heard the recitation, when they heard the verse of the Quran, they were like, wow, that's poetry to another level. This can't be from, they knew instantaneously it cannot be from a man. There is no person who will be able to do that. Even if they combine all the jinns together to help you write something like this, they won't be able to do it. And that day is when Abu Bakr Siddiq's mother embraced Islam.